Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Professor Jonathan Dauber. Professor Dauber holds a BA in Near Eastern and Judaic Studies and History of Ideas from Brandeis University. Professor Dauber earned a PhD in Jewish mysticism from New York University. Professor Dauber currently is Associate Professor of Jewish Mysticism at Yeshiva University's Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies, where he is also the director of the PhD program. Professor Dauber's areas of specialization are the various stages of Kabbalah, as well as Eastern European Hasidism. Professor Dauber has authored Knowledge of God and the Development of Early Kabbalah, Secrecy and Esoteric Writing in Kabbalistic Literature, and is currently working on is Sefer HaBahir, a translation and commentary. And today we will be uh, discussing Professor Dauber's area of expertise, the fascinating topic, uh, perhaps somewhat misunderstood topic, which is Kabbalah and specifically the history of Kabbalah. Professor Dauber, thank you so much for joining us today. Most appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this, and I'm happy to uh, to share what I can about the history of Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah. Okay, thank you. Uh, just to get started um, briefly, how would you define Kabbalah? Okay, so, so the term Kabbalah just means tradition. But in the Middle Ages, the term was given to a particular set of traditions, these are traditions about the ten sefirot, uh, which are ten manifestations or ten aspects of God that have particular functions in the governance of the world, that are described in particular types of symbolism that the Kabbalistic literature is full of. So that's, in a technical sense, what Kabbalah is, a set of traditions about the ten sefirot. Uh, the medieval Kabbalists believed that these traditions were given orally at Sinai, so that effectively there were two oral Torahs. There was the Torah Shebel Peh, as we know it, and then there was the Torah Tassod, the Torah of Kabbalah, which they say was transmitted orally until the Middle Ages, when it was finally uh, put into writing. Um, a little less technically, the term became a catch-all for all kinds of works that have a more mystical approach to Judaism, even if they're not about the Sefirot per se. So works like Hechalot literature, uh, the literature of Hasidei Ashkenaz, and, and other, other types of more mystically inclined literature that in a broad sense are included under the rubric of Kabbalah. Um, the, the foundation of Kabbalah, people know or believe to know, that is the Zohar. Um, without getting to all the historical and all the debates, what is the traditional Jewish view regarding the origins of the Zohar? And what, what exactly is the Zohar? Um, okay, so maybe I'll start with what exactly is the Zohar. Uh, as I think you alluded to, it's, it's the certainly the most influential work of Kabbalah. If you would, you know, take out your Zohar from your, your bookshelf, you would see that it's organized according to Parshiot, to the Parshiot of the Torah. And, and what it does is describe both the teachings and also the exploits. It's full of stories of Shimon Bar Yochai and his circle, the Chavraya, 
uh, as as the Zohar refers to it. Um, these teachings take the form of midrashic hamilis, midrashic drashot, and various psukim. And what's core to the Zohar's understanding is that the deepest meaning of the Torah involves the sefirot. So that even mundane psukim that seemingly have no connection to the sefirot, narratives or, or, or simple psukim, through the Zohar's lens, uh, get read as referring to these deeper secrets about the nature of God, about the sefirot. Uh, it's written in Aramaic. Um, from a literary point of view, I think even its detractors would say it's a great, it's a work of great beauty. Uh, it has a number of, of subsections which are labeled as such. The uh, Idrot, Midrash Hanelam, and many others that have their own unique uh, literary form. And you asked also regarding the origins of the Zohar. So the, the traditional view uh, as I think is widely known, is that it's the work of the second century Tana Shimon Bar Yochai. Uh, but I would say is that some traditional views, especially later on, uh, you know, were perhaps a little more flexible in their understanding. So people like Avram Galanti, who was a 16th century Mikubal, and others, uh, who said that the work is the teachings of Shimon Bar Yochai based on notes that was left by him or by his circle, but that it was assembled and edited uh, in the Geonic period. And, and this view also allows for certain interpolations, certain later additions to the text that weren't Shimon Bar Yochai. So even though it was the teachings and even the words of Shimon Bar Yochai kind of was edited into, into the work as we know it um, later on. And that's also a very common work, a common position, I should say, uh, within traditional Kabbalistic views. Um, just covering two other uh, important uh, Kabbalah uh, books, Svarim. Uh, what is the Sefer Hayitzira? You know, that's a, a surprisingly difficult question. Um, Sefer Yitzira is is probably the most enigmatic book in you know in the canon of Jewish literature. Maybe somebody would argue with me about that, but it, but it's, it's it's certainly a, a very, very enigmatic work uh, from a variety of perspectives. Let's just begin with authorship dating. So you may know that traditionally it's attributed to Avram Avinu. Uh, that's not an attribution that modern scholars take seriously, modern academic scholars. And, you know, and the fact of the matter is that, that there were medieval um, scholars as well who cast doubt on that possibility. Uh, Judah Barzillai, who wrote an influential commentary on, uh, on Sifri Yitzhira in the Middle Ages, you know, says, you know, how could it be, or is at least skeptical, but how it could be that Avraham is the author if it's never mentioned in the Torah? And if it's Avraham is the author, how come it's not included as a, as a book of the Torah? Uh, other questions along those lines. Um, but that doesn't saying that it's not by Avram though hardly solves the problem. And if you look at the scholarly landscape, the modern scholarly landscape, uh, I don't know if there's a work that has uh, a greater range in suggested dates. Um, modern academic scholars have said the work goes as far back as the Second Temple period, as Beit Sheni. Uh, others have said no, it's a Geonic work. So you really have this massive range. 
you know, which I think is is in part a sign of we're, we're simply not sure. We simply don't have a good sense of of when it was written and who wrote it. Now, that's dating and authorship. Uh, its meaning, though, is, is equally enigmatic. It's very short. You could, if you're so inclined, you know, spend a couple hours and get through the whole text. But it's highly unclear. At base, it argues that the world was created with 10 sfirot and 22 letters, although what exactly sfirot means in the context of Sifri Yitzirah, uh is also unclear. And I should say, we think of it as a Kabbalistic work. But in point of fact, before any Kabbalist ever commented on it, philosophers commented on it. Uh, there's a commentary on Sifri Yitzirah, for example, by uh, Sadja Gaon. You know, so at the turn of the 10th century, uh, who understood the Sefirot in, in highly different terms than the way Mikbalim later on understood it. Uh, now, eventually, it did indeed become a work that Mikbalim took more interest in than philosophers, and eventually became to be seen as a core work of Kabbalah. But it should be known that there were readings that predate Kabbalistic readings that read it along more rationalist, more philosophic lines and without giving away too much about your upcoming book when, when is it going to be published uh that's a good question it, it, it's, it's still it's, there's still some time it's uh okay. i've made okay. a lot of progress it's not there quite yet historians will argue about the date of its publication um, <laughs> so so without giving too much away what is the safer hubba here I think you're going to maybe see a theme from this answer. And the theme is, is that a lot of the classic works of a Kabbalah are enigmatic and very difficult to date. And often there are disputes between traditional Kabbalists and academics, but also between traditional Kabbalists themselves and between Kabbalists and non-Kabbalists, often uh, figures more philosophically inclined, more rationally inclined. So let me begin by saying, and I'll answer this the same way as I did uh, the Sifri Yitzhirah, start with dating. So the, the first time the work is mentioned is in the 13th, 1-3, the 13th century. But that's not when the work is from. Mekubalim uh, saw it as an early Midrashic work, uh, it's often referred to as Midrasha Shalav Nechunya Ben Hakana. That's how, for example, the Ramban refers to it. Now, the text doesn't make an internal claim that Nechunya Ben Hakana wrote it. It just begins, Amar Rav Nechunya Ben Hakana. But, but, it's a, but it reads like a Midrashic work, meaning there are many different figures, uh, rabbinic figures, some known from traditional rabbinic literature, some not known, um, who appear in the work. I should say that uh, that there were medieval scholars who were more rationally inclined. Uh, the most notable was Merib and Shimon of Narbonne, who was a 13th century uh, primarily halachic scholar who rejected the work as a forgery, thought it was impossible that Nuhunya ben Akana uh, could have written it. But, but as I say, it became very established as a Kabbalistic work. Kabbalists saw it as, along with the Zohar, uh, a work by Chazal, about Kabbalah. Now, from an academic point of view, scholars 
reject that it's a work from the time of Chazal. And I would say the predominant scholarly view, which I don't necessarily fully agree with, uh, is that it's a layered work. There's a a layer from the Geonic period. There's another layer from Germany in the medieval period. There's a third layer from southern France. It's kind of a work that accrued over time and grew. Uh, other scholars, which is a view that uh, you know, I am wrestling with myself now, uh, tend to see it as a work written by a single author, although when exactly that single author wrote it but, but also remain an open question. Um, in terms of its meaning, uh, it's also a strange work. Um, its Hebrew is, is really just from a literary point of view. It's not great Hebrew. There's Aramaic interspersed occasionally, and it's unclear why that's the case. It has parables that are uh, famously difficult, that seem to confound rather than make things easier to understand. Um, there's a lack of organizational structure. It's unclear, you know, always why one passage follows the next. So it presents a lot of challenges in terms of its structure and its organization. It reads like a midrash. Um, the term sfirot appears only three times in the whole work, and those three times are in the same context. You can kind of see them as one time. But it was widely understood by Kabbalists as talking about the sfirot only in other terms. And this is how many academic scholars understand it as well. Uh, although I should say recent scholarship has questioned this position and has argued that maybe uh, it shouldn't all be read in terms of the Sefirot, and maybe there are other uh, theologies at play as well. And uh, I, guess I'll, I guess I'll leave it there and you can uh, read my introduction when it comes out okay. for a fuller okay. account. Okay, excellent. Um, if we go to the... Talmudic period or the Talmud itself. Are there any references to Kabbalah in the Talmud? And when the Talmud speaks about those mysterious areas that require a certain way of studying, is that understood to be Kabbalah but not spelled out as Kabbalah? How does it play out in the Talmud? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. So, you know, what you're referring to is, uh, you know, the famous Mishnah in Masechet Chagiga. Uh, I think of it as a famous Mishnah, but this is, you know, the material that I work on maybe is, is not necessarily so famous. But but the the Mishnah Masechet Chagiga that prohibits the public exposition of Maseh Breshit and Maseh Merkava. And Maseh Breshit seems to be some sort of esoteric understanding of Breshit, of, of the creation narrative in Breshit, and Masei Merkava seems to be some sort of esoteric understanding of the first parak of Yechezkel, of Yechezkel's chariot vision. And Chazal, for the most part, you know, follow their own strictures, meaning Chazal doesn't really explain what Masei Breshit and what Masei Merkava is. There are various stories of people who studied Masei Merkava, but the the contents of, of that are, for the most part, really unclear. Now, medieval Mikubali, medieval Kabbalists, saw their traditions as Maseh Brishut and Maseh Merkava. Uh, Chazal were just hinting at them, and for various historical reasons, um, what Chazal only hinted at, later Mikubali 
felt it was time and necessary to to publish. Um, that's the uh, ballistic account. But, but you know, more rationalist Jewish philosophers saw Maseh Breshit and Maseh Merkava as reflecting philosophical secrets, um, secrets related to a more uh, rational Aristotelian um, understanding. So, for example, the Rambam understands Maseh Breshit and Maseh Merkava as related to Aristotle's physics and metaphysics. From a scholarly point of view, uh, a modern scholarly academic point of view, it's neither Kabbalah in terms of, if you mean by Kabbalah, Kabbalah Asfirot, and it certainly isn't Aristotelian philosophy. But what it may be, what it may refer to is this whole uh, other genre of literature that we have known as Hechalot literature. Hechalot literature has the same dating and authorship problems as a lot of other texts such as the Bahir, such as Sefri Yitzira, etc. It's literature, again, written in the name of Chazal, uh, the major figures are Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shmael. It seems, and there's various clues to this, that the Rambam himself had no use for this literature and, and rejected it fully. Um, but Kabbalists did view it as part of their canon, part part of their tradition. It describes um, mystical ascents. It describes the nature of the divine realm. And even some academic scholars, while maybe it's not the actual words of Rabbi Akiva or Rabbi Shmael, do believe that it goes back to the time of, of Chazal, perhaps to the second century even. And there there is a real possibility that the Maseh Breshit, or more particularly the Maseh Merkava, that Chazal referred to, that they don't want to share publicly, is what made its way into the Chalot literature. And uh, I'll just give one example, and then, uh, then I'll, I'll stop. You know, there's the famous Arba Sheikh Lesula Pardis account that appears in various places in rabbinic literature, and it's really unclear what that means. Uh, what, what the account means, what exactly, uh, for example, does Rabbi Akiva mean when he says you shouldn't say mayim mayim, you shouldn't say water water? You know, a strange statement which lacks explanation. If you look in the Chalot literature, it's actually very clear. Uh, there's an account of precisely what the Arba Shnechtasulapardes story is really about, and and the historical question is: Is that the inside scoop? Meaning, is that do they have kind of the inside knowledge, the writers of Hechalot literature, and this is really Chazal's Basemir Kava, or is it just a later interpretation like any other later interpretation? And scholars have gone, have gone you know, in both ways on, on that question. And as we move um, from the Talmudic period to the Gaonic period, I think we had referenced this uh, before, can one trace the development of Kabbalah and during the Gaonic period? Yeah, so again, it depends what you mean. Um, if you mean the Sfirot exactly as later Kabbalistic texts describe them, um, then no. Uh, if you mean Sefer Yitzirah, then there's you know plenty of interest of, well, at, well, at the very tail end of the Gaonic period, there's interest in Sefer Yitzirah. Uh, Beyond that, there's a lot of interest in 
Hichalot literature. The uh, Kairugniza, which has a lot of material from the Gothic period, is, is full of texts from Hichalot literature that I that I just mentioned. Haigaon, who's also at the tail end of the uh, of the Gothic period, has chuvot about Hichalot uh, material. There's also interest in more magical material, what uh, later on gets called Kabbalah Ma'asit, practical Kabbalah. Uh, a lot of that material as well in the Cairo Geniza. And then moving down to the period after the Goni period, the Rishonim, uh, I guess you would call that what, 12th, 13th, 14th century? Is that, yes. is that the period? And, and so any reference to Kabbalah, to the Zohar by this time? Or, for example, does Nachmanides, the Ramban, when he talks about sub secrets, is are we again talking about something that's a Kabbalistic tradition or again, Maseb Reshit, creation, etc.? Yeah, so the Ramban is certainly talking about uh, Kabbalah in the technical sense of the Kabbalah of the Sfirot. Um, he's He's, you know, a slightly younger contemporary of, of the first authors of Kabbalistic literature. They all lived in the same city, the city of Girona, where Ramban also lived, you know, before he before he immigrated to uh, Teres Israel. Um, these are figures like Ezra ben Shlomo of Girona, Azrael of Girona, um, a little bit a little bit earlier earlier on uh, Yitzhak Sagina Hor, and his father, Avram ben David. Uh, these figures um, either wrote Kabbalistic works, so, so we're at the end of the 12th, beginning of the 13th century, or if they didn't write themselves, certainly their students recorded their ideas and their names, and they were dealing clearly with, with Kabbalistic ideas, ideas about the Sefirot. Um, the Zohar is not known until a little bit later on. Um, you know, from a Kabbalistic point of view, from a traditional point of view, assuming a traditional authorship, you'd say it wasn't known. From an academic view, point of view, you would say it wasn't composed. Uh, but it's not referenced, let's say, until the very beginning, right, right around the turn of the 14th century. Around the turn of the 14th century is where you first get references to the Zohar. And then after that, there are you know numerous references to the Zohar going forward. I guess we'll go there now. Who was um, Moses de Leon, Moshe de Leon, and what was his contribution to the development of Kabbalah? So that's also an interesting question, and it's a, a question where um, scholarship has really evolved over the past 20 years, and I think it's a case also where sort of the popular knowledge of what scholarship thinks about these questions has not evolved with with scholarship. There's kind of a, a bit of a gap there. So, so who was who was Moshe de Leon? He was a Mikubal who lived in the second half of the 13th century in Castile, uh, you know, a region in Spain. He was a very voluminous writer. We have uh, numerous works of his in Hebrew. Uh, for a long time. Those works were only, for the most part, with one or two exceptions, in manuscript. Uh, now, though, 
virtually, if not all of his works are now available, all his Hebrew works, where he's the signed author, are are available in Hebrew, uh, are available in, I should say, in, in printed editions. Uh, now, that's why, not why he's interesting to scholars, though. Why he's interesting to scholars is his relationship to the Zohar. And what led to the notion that there's a connection between Moshe de Leon and the Zohar is a text by another Kabbalist named Yitzchak de Minako, Isaac of Acre, who was a younger contemporary of Moshe de Leon. Uh, it's not a text that's preserved in its entirety. It's only partially preserved in a later work. It's apparently from a journal that Yitzchak de Minako kept. And in this partially preserved texts, he says, he, he tells us that there was a debate and that he's writing, as I say, he's a younger contemporary of De Leon. There was a debate of what she's become aware about the Zohar. Some say that De Leon is the author. Others say, no, De Leon is not the author. Uh, De Leon had the manuscript of Shimon Bar Yochai that he just distributed. And uh, Yitzhak Dominako was almost like a detective. He kind of goes to investigate uh, this account, and he actually meets Moshe de Leon. And Moshe de Leon swears to him, yes, I have the manuscript in my house. Uh, they, they didn't meet in Moshe de Leon's hometown. They met somewhere else. Moshe de Leon says, you know, come visit me at home. I'll show you the manuscript. Uh, but before that happens, Moshe de Leon dies. Uh, so, you know, Yitzhak Timidako never gets to see the manuscript. But he continues his, his investigation and he gets all kinds of different accounts. Um, he hears, although not firsthand, um, that Moshe de Leon's daughter and wife uh, said that Moshe de Leon ne never had a manuscript. He wrote it from his own head. And the only reason he claimed it was by Shimon Bar Yochai was because he could sell it for more money. Um, he meets other people who say, no, students of de Leon who say, no, that's not true at all. Uh, he is indeed. Uh, he's not the author, he, he had the manuscript. Um, and and it, his text cuts off. We don't, we don't get to his full account. We don't know, you know, what other evidence he may have, he may have, un, he may have uncovered. But that's what made scholars really turn to look at Moshe de Leon um, and compare his Hebrew works that I mentioned to the Zohar. And based on that comparison, um, scholars were led to the conclusion that Moshe de Leon was the author of the Zohar, uh, primarily because there were passages in his Hebrew works that apparently he attributes to himself uh, that then appear in the Zohar uh, in an Aramaic form. So, so that that's that's the scholarly. That was the scholarly point of view. And as you know, this, this is a, a, a point of view of great contention. It's been one that's been very heavily debated. Um, more recent scholarship actually has developed a more complex point of view uh, where Moshe de Leon is not the single author of the Zohar, uh, but he's an author who uh, worked in a circle with other authors. Uh, if anyone's interested, um, Yehuda Libis, who is a, a 
professor, was a professor, he's retired at, at uh, Hebrew University, wrote a classic article called Kutzad Ber Sefer HaZohar, where he um, advances this thesis of multiple group authorship of the Zohar. And some of his students, uh, most notably Ronit Meroz, uh, has, has further developed this thesis, arguing that it, it was a generational project. It wasn't only written not by one person, not even by one circle, but maybe by multiple circles over several generations. Um, you know, the jury is still out on all these things. I think these are all things that, um, you know, that require more manuscript work, uh, more comparative work. So I, I don't think sort of we're, we've reached the end of the story about the authorship of the Zohar. There, there may still be, you know, new discoveries as we, uh, you know, just as we gain more more access to more materials. So obviously at this period, we have the Zohar, no matter who you attribute it to, coming out and getting out into, into the Jewish world. And so we now, let's say we reach Sfat, Safed in the uh, 16th century. How does that become a center, if it was indeed more than Spain, of Kabbalistic study? And who was Isaac Luria and his contribution to Kabbalistic thought? Yeah, so, you know, Spain Spain was the center of, of Kabbalah, but of course the, the expulsion uh, ended all that. And uh, and like you say, uh, Svat in the 16th century became the center of Kabbalah, um, really unparalleled. Uh, you know, uh, the, the kind of the gathering of, of Kabbalim and Svat, I, I don't think it has a precedent earlier, altogether in one city. You know, there's kind of more mundane political economic reasons for this. Um, you know, Tzfat at the beginning of the 16th century, you know, as of the whole, as as is true of of the whole land of Israel, uh, was ruled by the Ottomans. Um, Ottomans were were considered very welcoming to Jews. Um, Jews looking to get out of Europe, which was less less welcoming, uh, flocked to to Tzfat. Um, there was a, a rich textile industry in Sfat. You know, economically it was sound. I mean, there's accounts about the water being good in Sfat. It was, you know, considered a a nice place to live, a good place to live. Uh, economically, socially, it was a, a protected city. Um, so, so Jews Jews flocked there. Uh, it was kind of a melting pot. There were Jews from Europe. There were Jews from elsewhere in the Ottoman Empire. You know, religiously, it was near Meiron, you know, the uh, traditional burial spot of Shimon Bar Yochai, which was a, you know, a tremendous magnet for capitalists. Um, the possibility of being, you know, in proximity to the grave. Mekbalim and Svat would, you know, would would, would, would visit the grave, um, etc. Um, you know, and then it kind of built on itself. There were many very prominent Kabbalistic uh, personalities in Sfat, Moshe Cordovero, and of course he mentioned the Ari, who, who I'll come to in a moment, um, you know, who uh, were just magnets, uh, you know, figures who were viewed as these leading authorities, who were charismatic leaders, were just viewed as magnets, and it really just created this, like, like I say, this uh, really remarkable uh, 
conglomeration of, of Mikabalim in one place. Uh, so you asked about Isaac Luria, the Ari. Uh, so he was certainly the most influential Kabbalist of all time. He was born in Yerushalayim in 1534. When he was a young boy, uh, his father died and his mother moved them to, to Egypt, uh, where he lived uh, in his uncle's household. His uncle was, was, a, was a wealthy tax farmer. His uncle owned an isle, an island, I should say, on the Nile. And for about six years or so, uh, during uh, the Ares time in, in Egypt, he actually would spend the, the week uh, on this island, essentially in seclusion, studying Zohar. Coming, only coming back on, on Friday, coming back for Shabbat. Uh, in 1569 or 70, he settled in Tzfat, he moved to Tzfat. He studied with the Ramak, Moshe Kodavero, who was the other leading personality in Tzfat, for a very short period, just a few months. Um, the Ramak died in 1570. The Ari himself died two years later, died in 1572, so when he was only 38 years old. So, And the Ari was not a prominent figure before Tzfat. I mean, his, his entire influence, and this, this to me is a remarkable part of the story, his entire influence was over a period of two years. Uh, and again, that's just unprecedented, and I don't, I don't think, not only unprecedented, I don't think there's a later example either of someone who had such great impact in such a short period of time. There's no record of the Ari and his involvement. Uh, the Egyptian Jewish community was was a strong with a very influential. No, 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 no. And he wasn't involved in that at all. Or no, 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 no. He certainly was. He he studied with the Radbaz. Uh, he studied with Metzal uh, ben Avram Ashkenazi. Even contributed to the Shittah Mekubetzet. No, he, he certainly was. But I mean, his his renown as, as this his influence as a Kabbalist comes from those two years in Tzfat. Is you know his what he's known for primarily. Uh, yeah, and uh, and it's also interesting, right? He he wrote very little himself. Uh, he was really a teacher who conveyed his teachings orally. Uh, his teachings were recorded by his students. Chaim Vital was the chief expositor of it, of his writings. When you get Kitve Ari if you, in your bookstore, it's, it's really Kitve Chaim Vital. It's Chaim Vital's uh, recordings of his teacher's work. Um, and in terms of his significance, in terms of the Kabbalistic thought, uh, the Ari really gave a new interpretation of the Zohar, a deeper interpretation of the Zohar that the Kabbalim viewed as a more profound, a truer reading of the Zohar. Uh, many of the doctrines that we think of as central to Kabbalah were really developed, or at least given their authoritative interpretation by him, by the Ari. Things like Tzimtzum or Shvirat HaKelim or the Nitzotzot. Uh, so he really was, like I say, in this brief period, a figure of, of really remarkable influence on the uh, future history of Kabbalah. His the, the the writings based on the teachings of of the Ari um, are focused on the Zohar, 
primarily? So, so no, um, there, there are teachings that are directly on the Zohar. Most of them are not focused on the Zohar, but, but, but it's clear that they were developed out of a deeper reading of the Zohar, meaning they're for the most part as presented by Chaim Vital, not presented exegetically, although the Zohar is certainly mentioned frequently, but, but it's a more organized doctrine that emerges from, from the Zohar, from a reading of the Zohar. If, if if we're raising our children in Sfat at that time, okay, so and, and and we are sending them or teaching them, we're sending them to day school, Hebrew day school, Jewish day school, or we're teaching them at home. So they have, let's say, the regular curriculum, let's say, of the Bible and, and the Mishnah and then the Talmud. Is Kabbalah part of that curriculum? Like, do these kids know? Do they know that there's this thing called Kabbalah and they're in the midst of this center of Kabbalah and one day, maybe after they're 40, they're going to, you know, be studying this? Is that like part of the, you know, environment? It's certainly part of the environment. Um, and certainly, you know, you know, a 10-year-old child would have known that these are the figures who are the Kabbalim, who have, who have this deep secret knowledge. Uh, but in terms of the knowledge disseminating, even within the circles of Mekabalib and Sfat, there were a number of different circles. It was very much closed knowledge, um, knowledge studied in these circles. The Ari um, felt very strongly that his works, that his ideas should not be disseminated. In fact, uh, you know, Chaim Vital left... Uh, a very interesting book called Sefer Chazionot, where he records his dreams and his other kinds of musings. And uh, there's a, a passage there where he, Chaim Vital, blames himself for the Ari's death because the Ari didn't want so many students. And Chaim Vital invited more students than the Ari wanted to come hear the Ari's teachings. Um, and, and, and as punishment for that, uh, for, for disseminating too much, uh, you know, Vital is worried that the Ari, the Ari died. So, so despite the fact that it would have been known and it was kind of in the air, uh, there was a sense of secrecy and esotericism that surrounded the material. And so we're still talking about a transmission that is within closed groups of capitalists. That is within closed groups of capitalists. Now, look, th this is also around the time um, when, when Kabbalistic works begin to be published. So, so there, there is, you know, there, and there, were, there were great debates, for example, about should you publish the Zohar, should you not publish the Zohar? Um, so, so there are Kabbalistic works that are starting to be published, uh, you know, a little bit after this time. Um, you know, so there, there certainly is, and moving into the 17th and 18th century, there certainly is a, is a lessening um, of esotericism. And I should say, just to kind of round out round out the historical narrative a little bit, um, there was a lessening of, of esotericism up to Shabtai Tzvi, right? But but uh, but a lot of Mukabalim and others understood Shabtai Tzvi to be partially the fault of Kabbalah spreading too easily, too widely, everybody learning Zohar, and there sort of was an attempt uh, you know, to reinstate some secrecy. So, for example, that, you know, 
the uh, the notion that you can't study Kabbalah till you're after you're forty uh, comes from you know the aftermath of Shabtai Tzvi. And, and Shabtai Tzvi, I take it, was someone who claimed to know Kabbalah well and practice yeah, yeah. even practical Kabbalah. Precisely, um, and you know, and the, the Zohar for the Sabbateans was the work, was the most important work. As we move um, to the rise of Hasidism, is there a connection between the development of Kabbalah and the rise and spread of Hasidism? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a there's a strong connection. Uh, you know, Kabbalistic ideas are really at the basis, at the very basis of uh, of Hasidic thought. Um, but but I think it's, it's what they do with Kabbalistic ideas that kind of gives Hasidut its unique flavor. Um, you know, one 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 part of it is is popularizing. Uh, Hasidic masters were more willing to popularize Kabbalah than than Misnagdim were, even though many of the Misnagdim were also Kabbalists, uh, Misnagdim tended to have a more esoteric stance, uh, Hasidim tended to have a more public stance. But but more than that, um, I'm talking in relative terms here, in a lot of earlier Kabbalistic literature, the, the chief questions were metaphysical questions, the nature of God, um, the one and the many questions like that. How you can understand divine unity if there, in terms of when, when there's also tense fewer. Uh, it doesn't mean they were they were not interested in more personal religious questions. You know, what, how can I connect to God if I have a, a low state of spiritual energy? Those kinds of questions. But those, relatively speaking, were less important. And Hasidut it flips. It's the the questions of Called psychological questions, uh, how I, as a human being, can connect to God, uh, become more central, and the metaphysical questions become less central. Although, again, talking in relative terms, and one of the things that means when it comes to Kabbalistic literature is Hasidic. The early Hasidic figures, in particular, were, were were less interested in technical metaphysical questions about the sefirot, but in how the sefirot are manifest in religious life in the human psyche. Um, how can I experience the sefirot of Chesed within me in, in my own relationship to God? And I'll, I'll just give you a story of, um, about the Maggid of Mezrich, who was you know the, one of the chief disciples of the Baal Shem Tov, which I think it's telling, it kind of gets to this point. Um, and, and the story is that he admonished somebody for teaching Kabbalah in public. And the person he admonished said, you know, what do you mean? <laughs> you also teach Kabbalah in public. Why are you admonishing me? And the Maggid's answer, which I think is telling, is, is that when I teach Kabbalah, I'm interested in how Kabbalistic ideas are manifest inside the human being. That's what I teach, how Kabbalistic ideas are manifest in the human being. What you teach is, is simply the abstract Kabbalistic, uh, abstract metaphysical concepts of Kabbalah. And, it, and it's telling because 
certainly it's not a rejection on the part of the Magid of the abstract metaphysical principles of Kabbalah, which he certainly believed, but that's not what he's teaching. What he's interested in teaching is, is how these ideas relate and, and play out in the human psyche. So we have a figure uh, at, at that time as, as Hasidism comes about. We have the Vilna Gaon, um, the Gaon of Vilna, and, and we know that a number of commentaries he has, the revealed commentary and the esoteric comp- commentary, the Nigla and the Nistar. And is the Nistar Kabbalah? And, and was that one of the areas of contention between Mitnagdim and Hasidim in terms of promulgating Kabbalah? Yeah, precisely. Yeah, I mean, the Vilna Gaon was, was a Kabbalist, uh, you know, wrote, wrote important Kabbalistic texts. In fact, uh, he even has comments on Sefer HaBahir, uh, among other things. Um, yeah, part of the dispute, I mean, the dispute involved, you know, various matters, but part of the dispute was very much about the popularization of, of Kabbalah, the feeling that, that, um, that Hasidut was publicizing Kabbalah when they shouldn't. And, and I should say part of this is also tied into fears about Sabbatianism. Um, one of the, one of the, not true, uh, but nevertheless statements that you find in, in some Isnagdic works is, is that Hasidim had Sabbatian leanings. And part of it has to do with their interest in the Zohar and in spreading Kabbalah, even though there's no real evidence, you know, for, for that claim. Yes, yeah, so, so, so very much so. Uh, the the status of, of of Kabbalah in the public sphere was part of the Misnagdic Hasidic debate. How, how would you describe the history of Kabbalah over the last two hundred years? I mean, today obviously there's people throw out Kabbalah, you know, whatever. It's it's made its way, obviously, as we know, into Hollywood and all that stuff. But Kabbalah, as as we understand, you know, real Kabbalah over the last couple of hundred years. Um, you know, so in some sense, you know, the the, the most important, uh, you know, it's really twentieth century. I would say is even more important than nineteenth century. Um, you know, there's really a real move in the 20th century, starting with with Ashlag uh, in Israel to to popularize to popularize Kabbalah. Um, you know, I, I would say that that in a lot of circles, um, Kabbalah has become something that is you know is taught is is acceptable. Um, there's kind of been a further de-esotericizing, I, I think, of Kabbalah, a sense that Kabbalah is appropriate in the uh, in the broader sphere. A lot of that has to do, of course, with the influence of Chabad, successful influence of Chabad. Um, in terms of publish, publishing Kabbalistic works, all kinds of works, and, and this is, forget 200 years, this is a phenomenon of the last you know, 30 or 40 years. Um, and it's only picked up in pace. Uh, Kabbalistic works that were in manuscript, that were maybe known by a handful of academic scholars, are now being published, not by academic scholars, but being published from manuscript 
you know, by traditional, uh, often often Hasidim. Um, there, you know, there's been some some rejection, some some questioning of the of this trend. But I would say, you know, over the past two hundred years, the trend has been decidedly more towards uh, popularizing, opening, making available. Uh, you know, you can read the Zohar in Hebrew online if, if you're so inclined. Yeah, I mean, is it scholarly work? I mean, when you popularize someone in a scholarly way, or it's um, you know, so some of the the critical editions, the editions that are coming out of uh, Haredi or Hasidic presses are are actually quite scholarly, uh, relying on multiple manuscripts. Um, you know, with you know, uh, variants with an apparatus that has variants. Um, look, you know, there's still, of course, a great divide between the historical assumptions of academic scholars and the historical assumptions of, of Haredi scholars. Uh, but in terms of critical methodology when it comes to editing, um, Kabbalistic works, uh, you know, it, it's it's a lot closer than it used to be. Yeah, so I think there are real real works of, of serious serious scholarship. You know, in addition to to more, um, you know, to popularizations that are, that are not scholarly per se, but uh, but are are meant to find ways to talk about Kabbalah. You know, that are meaningful to a broader audience. You know, in a certain sense, a kind of continuation. Of the Hasidic project, which which is not not that it's scholarly, not that it's incorrect from a critical or scholarly point of view. It's it's just it has a different goal. Um, just just in, very briefly, if we can just take um, one Kabbalistic idea and kind of explain it, maybe something like I don't know, klipot. How would you translate that? Like, uh, if, if that's yeah, something. Sure. That you, um, I'm trying to think of an idea that I can uh, give you quickly, okay, uh, without uh, without getting esoteric. Yeah, without without getting too involved, right? Uh, um, no, maybe maybe the easiest is let me just talk a little bit more about the sfirot. Sfirot, um, abso- oh, absolutely, absolutely, that's perfect. So, basically. From a Kabbalistic point of view, there is a concealed, unknowable aspect of God and a revealed, knowable aspect of God. The concealed, unknowable aspect of God is what's known as insuf, uh, endless, you know, uh, without limit, infinite. And if I were to show you Kabbalistic descriptions of insuf in isolation, you would think you're reading the work of a medieval rationalist philosopher. You think you're reading Maimonides because insof is beyond description. You can only talk about insof negatively. You can't say what insof is, only what insof isn't. Um, but where Kabbalists break from that more rationalist Maimonidean strain is that insof emanated 10 spherot. These 10 spherot are 10 manifestations of God that are the knowable, accessible aspect of God. 
um, way in which God governs the world, uh, and the aspects of God which human beings can relate to, can connect to, uh, The higher up you go to the, uh, along the sphere, the closer you're at Ensof, the less noble. The, the lower, the lower down, the tenth sphere, the sphere of Malchut or Shechina, is the most noble. That's the aspect of God that's really imminent, that's present uh, in our world. Um, now, Kabbalists are, are very, very careful to to, to state that, um, despite the fact that we're talking about a concealed portion of God, and then ten revealed aspects. You shouldn't take this to mean there are there is there are multiple gods, or there are, there are multiple parts of God. Um, and, and various Kabbalists tackle that question in different ways. Some say that just from a human perspective, it seems as though there are multiple aspects of God. God is a perfect unity. Um, other Kabbalists say that there's kind of a paradox. There are 10 that are one. Um, still others say that the Sfirot are not actually aspects of God at all. They're kelim, they're vessels through which insof functions. Um, and and I should say that's part of the reason why Kabbalists uh, were worried about esotericism. They were worried that people would hear their views and think, oh, Kabbalists believe that there are 10 gods. And in, in fact, there were such critiques, right? Uh, Kabbalists have more heretical views than Christians do. Uh, Kabbalists believe in ten spherot, whereas Christians just believe in a trinity. But there were there were such critiques historically, and, and Kabbalists were very very keen to prevent them. But nevertheless, that they, they there are these ten aspects of God, and these ten aspects of God are described in a remarkable variety of symbolic terms. And, and again, the term here is symbolic, not literal. There are anthropomorphic descriptions of the Sfirot. So the Sfirot of Chesed is, is God's arm. Um, not that God has an arm. It's more that the human arm, in some sense, in some way, uh, is a manifestation of that, that divine arm, even though that divine arm, in no sense, is a physical, literal arm. Um, and so on and so forth. Uh, the sun and the moon are, are symbolically referred to as the Sfirot, the, the Avot. Avraham is the Sfirah of Chesed. Yitzchak is the Sfirah of Din. Yaakov is the Sfirah of Tiferet. Again, these are all symbolic designations uh, which are meant to say that Avraham somehow uniquely uh, manifests that aspect of God which is characterized by Tiferet. Um, not to say that that in any way God is materialized or has a uh, real physical connection uh, to the Avot. Last, um, yeah. Yeah. Last question, which is perhaps a little tongue-in-cheek. If one wants to learn Kabbalah today, should they go Should they go to Bernard Revel and learn Kabbalah, or should they try to get into a yeshiva like Shara Shammai in, in Jerusalem, which is a Kabbalistic yeshiva? Where's the best place to learn authentic Kabbalah today? Yeah, that, that's you know that, that's putting me on the spot. <laughs> of course, of course it depends. You know, tongue in cheek. Yeah. Um, tongue in cheek. Well, if it's tongue in cheek, I'm going to have to say, as an advertisement for the Bernard Revel Graduate School, that you should 
come study with us. Uh, and you can also, if you're not interested in Kabbalah, we also teach Jewish philosophy. So uh, we have all our bases covered. Okay. Okay. Again, this has been fascinating. Just, uh, you know, obviously the, the tip of things here and, and everything else we have to keep to ourselves because it is Kabbalah. So, uh, Professor Dabber, again, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate your time today. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.